Hey, good morning. Uh, Jesse, just one quick correction. Uh, everything else was really good. I think I said 80s action movie. Not, not I'm an 80s kid, so think like when you think Jesus, think more like John Claude Van Damme than Nick Cage. I'll allow if you're a 90s kid, I'll allow Nick Cage, but I really want you to think of Jesus like out on the boats doing that weird like kind of split thing that John Claude Van Damme does. I don't know. It's always helpful for me. Um, we are going to employ your guys' imagination this morning, so track with me. And what I want you to do is imagine with me for just a second that you're like an average citizen. And now, I, like, I don't mean that to be like your average, but you're just like a normal, everyday, average citizen going about the things that you do. You're working your job, you're raising your family, you're paying taxes, you're going to school. But it's the one day of the week, much like today, where you gather with your fellow Jesus followers to break bread, to encourage one another, to read the scriptures. But you're not like in some elaborate cathedral, and you're not in the comfort and confines of someone's home. Instead, you're huddled together in the dark and dank catacombs under the bustling city that you've called home your entire life. Why? Because you've pledged your allegiance to a king, and you have declared your citizenship in that king's kingdom. The problem is that king is not Nero, and that kingdom is not Rome. And because of this, while you're confident in your newfound beliefs, and there's comfort in gathering together with like-minded people who have declared the same allegiances, Nero, the emperor of Rome, the king of Rome, is now set against you in a deranged and obsessed campaign to detain and disappear all of you. And if you and your little like ragtag group of dissidents are discovered, it's all over. You'll be arrested on sight and summarily sentenced to death. See, when Nero came to power, Rome was experiencing really like a relative period of peace. And he showed some ability as a leader. However, in AD 59, he changed, and so did everything else. Starting with, and man, we got to get real, starting with like the murder of his own mother, his first wife, and allegedly his second wife. He began then a radically cruel and immoral campaign against his own citizens. Then, when a devastating fire raged through Rome in AD 64, burning unchecked for like seven days, ultimately it destroyed nearly 80% of the city. There's a conspiracy that speculated that Nero himself had started the fire, created the problem so that he could come in and rescue Rome and its citizens. Also, to deflect suspicion away from himself, Nero blamed it on this new, like, cult that was gaining traction in the city. Its followers claimed that God had actually showed up in the form of a 
human being in Jerusalem, and, and, and now they're claiming this person as their king. And as word swept through the city that the destruction and devastation had been caused by these anti-social, anti-religious fanatics. So Nero sent in his military to round up every follower of this Jesus guy that he could find. When he arrested them, the sheer depravity of his torturous plans would come to light. In some cases, in some cases I'm like really thankful when kids starts up again because of the things I have to say right now. Um, so guard your kids' ears. But in some cases, like he would clothe his captors, these, everybody else called them like Christians, right? And he would, he would clothe them in the skins of wild animals and then put them on public display in a form of cruelty. And then he would let all of the feral dogs, the wild dogs that ran loose throughout the city against them. Others he would dip in pitch or tar and set them up in the courtyard of the palace, using them as human torches. And of course, many of them, most of them met their demise in probably what has become the most infamously cruel way. They were brought into the heart of the city, into the Colosseum, where games took place. And they were fed to the lions for entertainment. In all probability, it was around the year 65, in really the immediate aftermath of that great fire, that the first written record of the life and ministry of Jesus appeared. And it's this letter. It's the Gospel of Mark. So imagine yourself in the dark, dank catacombs, worshiping with a little band of believers, the leaders of your little assembly come with a new letter. And, and yeah, while you're confident in the person that you are now declaring God and King, that he has rescued you, that he has freed you, that he has bought and purchased your salvation with his very own life, you're still, you're still human, you're still fearful of the consequences. And so these leaders come in with this newly minted letter, and it's, it's the gospel of Mark, and it's meant to remind you of your salvation in Jesus, that nothing can touch you now because of Jesus. And it's meant to encourage you that as you face persecution, and you will face persecution, that you should persevere even in the darkest of hours. That's the gospel of Mark. That's why it was written to this little ragtag group of believers that found themselves in the city of Rome. And they needed desperately some encouragement. So let's pray and we'll get right into it. Father, we thank you for today once again. And we thank you for your word handed down to us through centuries in some ways, it would be easy to think it's not about us. It's about, a, it's about a group of people that existed and lived, and it's their history. And yet, at the same time, it couldn't be more about us because ultimately it's about Jesus forming a people, a, a church. And so as we read your word today, we recognize first and foremost, it's about the person and the work of Jesus. All of it points us to Jesus, but Jesus' work finished and formed is that he created a new covenant people. And so as we read your word today, would it span across the centuries and 
May it be encouraging to us. May it remind us that our salvation is firm and solid in the finished work of Jesus. May it encourage us today to be a people that persevere, even in the darkest of days, and proclaim, just like Mark, that Jesus is good news. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So the person who wrote this letter is this guy named John Mark. And and what we know about him is that he was a missionary. He was friends with Paul. He was a personal assistant to Peter. And man, he really, as he begins to write, he, he clearly has a point to get across. I mean, just the opening words, right? Because he starts his gospel, which just means good news. He starts this good news with a very rapid fire succession of details around the key events in life and ministry of Jesus. It's very different than the other gospels. Matthew, if you start there, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. So he wants his readers to know that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah king. And he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. But then we've got Luke, and Luke writes primarily with a Greek audience in mind. And so it's different. Mark wants you to know, and he wants his readers to know, that Jesus is the perfect son of man who came to save all people from sin. John's audience, and what we know about John, I mean, let's be honest, he refers to himself, like you might like be like, yeah, he has a bit of hubris happening. Like he refers to himself as like, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John is writing to everybody. John's like, I think everybody should pay attention to what I, like every human should pay attention to what I have to say. And he's writing to tell everyone that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And he is the Messiah. And in order to receive eternal life, we must believe in those things to be true about him. But Mark is written to the Jesus followers in Rome. And he's telling them that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah who gives his life to ransom all of creation from the clutches of sin and death and depravity. And he writes with a clarity and a precision unmatched by his counterparts. Not a word is wasted in Mark. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. And, and, and kind of like John, it's, it's almost more notable for what Mark doesn't include than what he does. There's no genealogy, thank goodness. There's no birth narrative. There's no, there's no like childhood events in Nazareth. There's, there's no Sermon on the Mount. There's just really a few parables. But with his opening salvo, these opening verses, he, he gives not only an introduction to our section today, but really for the entirety of his gospel is what he's doing. And he starts it this way. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we learn so many important things in that one sentence, right? Mark uses that word, beginning, right? And in doing so, God's big plan is that it would tie us back to the beginning of the story. It would show that that this story that Mark is writing to these, these Jesus followers in Rome has its beginning, its genesis in the beginning of the story. It also connects it to 
who else's gospel? What, what does John say, right? It, it connects it to John's gospel and what God wants us to see, what he's doing through Mark here in his words is he's saying, listen, this is a new beginning. In some ways, this new covenant that's going to come through Jesus is going to start things anew, right? So it's a beginning in a sense. And he's saying that this is the beginning of something new and that it's good news, right? That gospel word again, that just means good news because the Christ or the Messiah, who is the Son of God, has arrived in the person of Jesus. And so he says two very important things about Jesus's identity in that opening sentence, right? One refers to Jesus as the Christ, right? The Greek word used there is Christos, which means anointed or royal figure. So he's wanting us to see that Jesus is anointed and that he's a kingly person. Now that Greek word is used interchangeably for the Hebrew word Messiah. So, so Jesus is the Christ, he's an anointed royal figure, but he's also the Messiah. So, and it's, it's, it's commonly used in Greek when talking to Gentiles instead of Messiah. So that's a word and a term that they would understand. So he's connecting it to something significant that his audience would understand, but he's also connecting it deeper roots to the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story where in Genesis chapter 3, God promises that he would send a Messiah, right? And so, so, so either way, like this would infer that Christ is the one who would come. Christ is the long-awaited, or Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He would come and he would be the administer of God's rule on earth. He would redeem Israel from all of its enemies and that this Christ would not simply be another king, but he would be the king, right? And then he also uses this very distinct title for Jesus, the Son of God, which is this, it's an overt claim to Jesus's deity, and it reveals to us that Jesus is unique, right? And he has this very unique and, and really unparalleled relationship with God the Father. So, so Mark will use that phrase, Son of God, over and over again throughout his gospel. So, so those are important things, just in that opening sentence. And that frames up all of all of Mark's gospel. He wants us to know. Famously, we'll get to this, to Peter's, Peter's proclamation. And in, in I think it's like chapter 8, verse 49, where he says, like, we have come to believe that you are these things. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And so Mark's setting up, much like John does. John just tells you his purpose at the end. Mark tells you right at the beginning. And so, so Mark wants us to know, right, some important things here in just these first few verses, these first 13 verses about Jesus. And so we're just going to do that. We've got three things that are important for us to know because Mark really wants us to know them. He doesn't say them. You know, like these points are not like written out there, but this is what he wants us to know through what he writes, right? So the first thing is this. He wants us to know that Jesus was foretold, okay? Um, and, and, and it's really like after this bold assertion in verse one of, of who Jesus is, there's some things he wants us to know about Jesus. So verse two, he says this, as it is written, right? So he's connecting it to something that's already been written before in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So here's a unique thing. Mark wants us to know that the gospel of Jesus, right, this story that he's writing to these Roman citizens, these followers of Jesus in Rome that are on the precipice of experiencing severe 
severe persecution, he wants them to know that, that Jesus' story has a prequel, right? It has, it has something that happened before this. It has a prequel, and thank goodness that George Lucas had nothing to do with that prequel, right? Jesus' backstory is the entire Old Testament, right? And, and, and really, like, if you were to kind of, like, go to Bible Gateway and lift, like, verse 2 out and cut and paste it into, like, the search bar, it wouldn't come up with Isaiah, right? Because it's a mashup of a few different places, actually, right? And so in this backstory, Mark mashes up several passages and themes from, like, a few key books to, to kind of drive his point home in these verses. Now, certainly Isaiah is referenced there, but, but what he really wants this imagery to evoke um, are specific things. Some of it should come up for you. Like, because we just spent, I don't even know how many weeks walking through this story, right? But some of it should make sense. We should hear the echoes of Exodus throughout Mark, right? It's meant to evoke very specific themes and imagery, those of wilderness, right? Which connects to the Exodus story, the, the, the Exodus itself. And, and then there's another thing thrown in there, uh, this, this guy Elijah that, that we'll talk about, right? So he pulls from books like Exodus and Malachi and Isaiah and mashes them up into this, these verses here. And he wants us to know that, that, that God has promised to send a messenger, right? So this is a little different, right? This, this messenger then has a very specific task. He will prepare the way. He will make the road ready for the Messiah, and he'll do this from the place that God always meets his people. Like, where does God always meet with his people? Where is a significant piece of geography? He always meets his people in the wilderness, right? And this message that he has, this messenger, is so simple and clear. God has kept his word. He is sending the Messiah. The great rescuer is on the way. And, and the interesting thing here about this Isaiah quote, this mashup, is that, is that it's not talking, Isaiah is not talking about the Messiah, He's talking about the one who is going to come before the Messiah. So we need to understand in the backstory that Mark is telling us, not only is the Messiah promised, but there's an individual, there's a person that's going to show up, a messenger, a herald, and is going to proclaim who the Messiah is. He's going to just straight up tell you that's God's Messiah right? And so, so that's what this is about. It's actually not about Jesus. It's not about the Messiah. It's about the messenger. So, so who is he talking about? Look at verse 4. We get it straight out. John, right? Not the disciple, but John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Isaiah, we need to see this, when Mark quotes these passages, we need to understand that, that he's, Isaiah is actually talking in those passages about John, John the baptizer, right? Which begs the question, who is this guy? Who's John the baptizer, right? How many of you often call him John the Baptist, right? More appropriate to call him the baptizer because that's referring to like what he did. So here's what we know about John. John was Jesus's cousin. He's a little bit older than Jesus, and he is a very like unique person in the story, right? To say the least. It, like he's a bit eccentric is probably a better way to say it, right? So, so John was in the wilderness and he's preaching that Israel should repent and be forgiven. They should confess. 
And then he was baptizing people. He's taking people, much like we did last week, and he's immersing them in water. He's pushing them under the water. So then let's look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, right? So despite, or, or really maybe because of his crazy, and, and you we're meant to understand, right? We haven't even got to the descriptors yet, but we're meant to understand that John is a bit odd, right? He, he, he comes across as a bit crazy. So despite it, or, or really maybe because of it, John was incredibly effective. All of the country, all of Judea, right? All of Jerusalem, and that's like a bit hyperbolic, but, but we're meant to see that, that John and his message and his movement had traction. People were coming out to hear what he had to say, probably also just to take a look at him because he was odd, and then they responded, right? So he's effective. God was at work through him. And when it comes to how we should think about him, verse 6 is, really gives us a clue, right? Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Some of those things sound okay and normal, and some of them don't, right? Like, belts, normal. Honey, good, right? Camel hair, weird, and um, eating locust, odd, right? So, so obviously, when it comes down to what he's wearing, like both, like, John, like John's fashion and his culinary, ex, like, kind of experience, right? It's so different than, and we don't get it, but it's so different what people in the ancient Near East in the first century would wear and eat, right? So there's no Old Navy and there's no GDIFs, right? John would have fit better in at like Burning Man than he did in his time. So we're meant to see that he stood out, right? He's wearing camels and he's eating bugs, right? It would have been odd even for his day and time. And that's not even just to mention that John spent most of his time alone in the wild by himself in a van down by the river that he then baptized people in, right? And so the reason why John was so odd is because he's more like an Old Testament prophet than anything else, right? And Old Testament prophets are unique when you get into them. They, they looked and acted differently than everybody else, right? So he acted more similar to the prophet Elijah, some, in fact, some people actually thought that that's who he was. So, so and because there's this tradition that Elijah is going to return. So, you, like, if you celebrate the Passover or the Seder meal, there's always a chair set out, and it's set out, and you might be thinking, like, wow, who, who didn't show up? Elijah. Like, the chair is for Elijah. They're waiting for Elijah to return. So, so, so John the Baptist is meant to stand out. He's meant to be unique. And he's not like everyone else. And that makes it a bit different for people to go like, well, we've heard about this strange guy that lives out in the wilderness wearing weird things. We want to go see him. But then and he's not trying to like bait or switch anybody. That's just in the vein. He's supposed to be seen as an Old Testament prophet, which is similar, right? So he comes preaching then about repentance and then he's baptizing. So, so what's even more interesting is that his message was not about himself right? Which is unique, right? So there's all sorts of prophets. There's all sorts of teachers. There's all sorts of people around this time and this location that were claiming things. And it was all about themselves. There were several people that claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the messenger. But what's unique about John's message is not about himself. It's about someone else. Look at verse 7 and 8. 
And every, again, everything moves quickly here in Mark's gospel. See, it says, I baptize you with water, but there is someone coming after me who is going to baptize. So he's like, listen, I'm going to baptize you. I'm going to dunk you in some water. And that's going to be a significant moment for you, and it should be. But, there's, like, I'm, I'm, but, but I'm just going to touch you with water. There's someone who's going to come after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So A, that's unique. It's the first time here that we start hearing, and Israel even starts hearing like different things about the Spirit of God. Right? You're going to be baptized to the Holy Spirit. And, and, and he is so great that I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. So who's he talking about, right? Well, let's read verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, right? Again, really succinct to the point. Here's what we need to understand. Like at this point in the story, John's work is done and finished and over. And really, Mark's not going to give it too much more detail, right? John came to be the guy before the guy. John came to be the guy that really nobody was supposed to pay attention to because he was supposed to direct all of their attention to the guy. And, and when Jesus arrives on the scene, John just gets out of the way. And you can see that change in verse 9. Notice the change, like to this passive voice. Mark isn't talking about John anymore. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is now the focus, and Jesus will be the focus. But he wanted to root it in that significant and important backstory right? And connect that Jesus is the Christ. He is this anointed royal figure who is the Messiah, who God promised he would send from the beginning of the story. And so, but it changes, like he's not talking about John anymore. So before we leave John in the rearview mirror, one more thing to say about him. Let's turn to, to Luke's gospel real quick. And for the most part, we want to stay in Mark's gospel, but there's a little detail that Luke gives us that's important, right? Jesus says this about John. I tell you, among those born of women, so every single human ever, right? None is greater than John. Jesus is saying, listen, and I know that like some of y'all are sitting out there going like, I'm pretty great. And you don't have to say it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. And it's okay to think. But Jesus just said, John is greater than all of you all. He's greater than anybody, right? John is the greatest to have ever lived. So Jesus is saying that John the Baptist, his, co his, his cousin, in his humble opinion, is the greatest man ever, which is a big deal, right? That means in verse 4 through 8, when we're, when we're reading about who Jesus says is the greatest man alive, which is John, that, that it should make us slow down on what John says in verse 7, Right? Because the greatest person who has ever lived, that God declares to be the greatest person who has ever lived, he's not even worthy to bend down and touch the shoelace, the shoe strap of Jesus. John felt small next to Jesus' shoestrings. It's crazy. And I think, honestly, like if I'm on, like, I get to stand up here every single Sunday and talk about him. That's crazy to me, right? It's crazy to me that you get to be in fellowship with Jesus, the person. You get to be in relationship with the king, the person that Jesus said, the greatest person who ever lived said, I'm not even worthy to like tie his shoes. Like, I'm lower than that compared to this person, Jesus. Like, I got to stand up here every Sunday and 
and tell you all about Jesus. And that's incredible to me. That's why every single Sunday, like it'd be so much easier for me to just go like, here's three things that you need to do to be a better something, better husband, better wife, better. But I'd much rather tell you about Jesus, the person who the greatest person who ever lived didn't consider himself worthy to even tie that person's shoestrings. Charles Spurgeon said this, preach you Christ and Christ and Christ. I mean, I don't know if I'm throwing another one in here. And Christ, it doesn't matter. And nothing else but Christ. And I think John would agree. It's not, it's not what you preach about, but who. So here's the second thing we learn in verses 9 through 13, is that Jesus is the Son of God, loved and delighted in by God the Father. So Mark shows us this reality in like two different ways, right? So the first is, I think, really the most obvious. It's in verse 10. Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized, just like all the other people in Judea and Jerusalem that were coming out to John. Jesus came to the Jordan River to be baptized, except that for Jesus, something astonishing happened in this moment, right? Um, unlike what happened with anybody else. Verse 10 and 11 says this, and Mark captures this so succinctly. And when he came up out of the water, meaning Jesus, right? After John, his cousin, is baptizing him, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased, right? So this is like an incredibly powerful moment. Remember, Jesus is fully human, and so in the life of this fully human person who's both fully God, this is probably the, one of the most powerful moments in his life. And because there's these important things that are happening here, right? The heavens were torn open, right? The Holy Spirit came down upon him. God the Father speaks to him. First of all, we have to recognize like this is Trinitarian. Like we are seeing God the Father speaking. We're seeing Jesus the Son in human form getting baptized. We're seeing the Spirit coming down like a dove, and, and, and going by Mark's account here, like, and, and we don't know for sure, but, but the way that he writes it and the way that, that Mark is so specific, we're meant to see that, that Jesus is the only one probably who sees this. And what's fascinating about that is, is that we as the readers, like, we get to read about it. So, so we get to look back and we get to read about this moment that probably only Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit experienced and saw Right? So there's some dramatic irony happening here. We, as now the readers of the gospel, we know more about Jesus than the characters in the gospel. Right? So, so, so they're seeing, they're witnessing this. They know that something is happening in this moment, but that they're probably not seeing it like Jesus saw it. So we get to see it in some ways like Jesus saw it, at least at the start. Right? So, so remember Mark already tells us in verse 1 that this is a gospel. This is good news about a person, about Jesus, right? And here he shows us an event that confirms it, that cements it, that makes the point clear. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is really the Son of God because Jesus in that moment is experiencing something different than anybody else that received baptism from John, and he's experiencing anybody else that was standing around witnessing that, right? But 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 Mark wants us to know even more that, not, that just He's not just the Son of God in some like vague way, on specific way. Jesus is the Son of God who is loved by God the Father and delighted in by God 
the Father. And we need to know this right from the start because if we're, if we're new to the story of Jesus today, we need to know that whatever trouble or hardship that Jesus finds himself in later, and he will, Jesus will find himself in some difficult positions, some dark places, and some challenging circumstances that no matter what, as the Son of God loved and delighted by in God, that's who Jesus is. So Mark can't make it any plainer for us when it comes to Jesus. God the Father speaks out of heaven, heaven that's been torn open. And as the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus, God the Father says to Jesus the Son, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is, this is like crazy moment here, right? This is what we all long to hear, right? Don't you long to hear that you belong to God, that you're valued by God, that you're loved by God, that you're delighted in by God? Well, that's Jesus, that's what we see here. So verse 12 through 13, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And this is a famous passage, although Mark does not go into the same detail as some of the other accounts. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So we're going to look at this a little bit differently than we would with some of the other gospel accounts that talk about the temptation of Jesus. We're going to keep it in Mark. And so Mark doesn't give us some of the same words and some of the same details. Again, he just moves through this. And so we're going to look at it through Mark's lens. What's he trying to say? So the word here drove him out means cast out. It's the same word used often by like the, the, uh, the, the casting out of demons, right? So don't make the connection to demons and Jesus necessarily, but just the word itself, which is like an immediate expulsion, right? So the spirit drives him out, casts him out. The point here is that this expulsion by the spirit of Jesus, it's, it's meant to be like forceful, right? The spirit didn't recommend that Jesus spend a little time in the wilderness. He expelled him there for 40 days to be tempted by Satan, right? So, and then he says, you are my son and I love you and I'm well pleased with you, which is great. Now get out of here, like leave, right? One like little practical thing for us to see here, right? Is this divine favor does not mean right? And as it comes to you, like, I want you to hear that as the people of God, you are approved and accepted and loved and delighted in by God, not because of anything inherent in yourself, but because of the work of Jesus, right? And I, and I really want us to get this, though, this divine favor that God now gives and grants to his children because of his son Jesus does not mean that you get an easy life. God being pleased with you does not mean everything in your life will be pleasant. God loving you does not mean that you will love your circumstances. This is the one thing that we see here. God's love for you and your suffering are not mutually exclusive or incompatible. Like Jesus teaches us that. And so we have to reconcile that, like God's promise and favor upon you does not mean that you will not experience dark days. It does mean, just like we talked about last week, that you have an eternal hope that teaches you, instructs you how to deal with those dark days, how to grow in them and flourish through them, right? So Jesus is the Son of God, 
loved and delighted in by the Father. Mark shows us that here in verse 11, and then he shows us another way in verse 13, right? And this is, this is kind of weird, verse 13. Let's look at it real quick. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Listen, like if you're reading this, how many of you would kind of go like, that feels a, like if you're just, on, like that feels like a kind of a throwaway verse. And a throwaway verse, because like if you're honest, you're like, I don't really know what it means. Like I read it and I was like, I don't know what that means right? And so I had to dig in. There's a bunch of different thoughts about this because it's kind of a strange verse, right? There's really no, like, one consensus among scholars on what's happening here in this. I mean, some people go like, yeah, like, think about that. Like, if you're getting this letter, you're, you're a citizen of Rome, and, and you know that what Nero is doing is he's dressing up other, like, people just like you, like, followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, and he's put wild animal skins and let like the, the feral dogs loose on them or, or like he's letting wild animals like eat them, right? So there's some connection there, but I, but I, but I think there's something different here. I have this idea, like I, I think the key is that last phrase that the angels were ministering to him. That's Jesus, right? So when he's out in the wilderness being tempted, there's a threat of wild animals, right? So we're meant to see that these wild animals are, are a threat, right? Um, they're, they're, they're meant, this is not like a snow white kind of moment where like Jesus is just going to like run around with all the wild animals and sing to the birds and the lions or whatever, right? They're meant to be threatening, so Isaiah 11 foretells a day when all the animals, right, get along and all the humans are safe, and that's beautiful, but that's not where we're at yet. I think the wild animals in verse 13 are alluding to something in the history of Israel, right? Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, kind of like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 days. So there's already a parallel between Jesus and Israel happening here again. Tune your hearts and your heads and your minds into the echoes of Exodus throughout this gospel story. It's incredibly fascinating and important, right? And so for Israel and their history, wild animals were always seen as a threat and dangerous. So, so just, I'm not going to go to the verses, but like, like during, their, during their kind of wandering, their journey through the desert to the promised land, wild animals were considered a threat. They were warned about as being a threat. They were even considered dangerous during Israel's conquest of the land. Wild animals were also a part of God's judgment for Israel's disobedience. God said this, it's kind of a mashup of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He said, I will loose the wild beasts against you with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. And so, so there's all these like consequences for wild animals, and they're meant to be seen as a threat, right? So I believe that the mention here of wild animals is meant to sound ominous and threatening, and it does, but the angels then were ministering to him. The angels were serving him. So, so what's that about? Well, and what does it have to do with wild animals? Well, there's this psalm. It's Psalm 91. And in, in Matthew's account of the temptation, Satan actually quotes from Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is all about God's care and provision and protection for his Messiah. All right? And so remember the scene of the Son of God, loved by God, delighted in by God. And then that's immediately juxtaposed by these 40 days in the wilderness tempted by Satan, surrounded by wild beasts. So the question is, what's going to happen to Jesus? Well, in Psalm 91, breaking in at verse 9, we find this out about the Messiah. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear up 
lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation, right? So Mark wants us to know that this is the Messiah that we read about in Psalm 91, and this is Jesus that we meet here in Mark chapter 1. Jesus was with the wild animals, and the angels were protecting and ministering to him. The angels were protecting Jesus, just like in Psalm 91. So, so this is just another way for Mark to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that God is for him and with him. God protects him and cares for him, even when he's in the middle of trouble and hardship. But wait a minute. If God is for the Messiah, right, why is, why is there trouble? Why is there hardship? If Jesus is somebody that God the Father loves and delights in, why is he in the wilderness? Why is he being tempted? Why is there danger? If Jesus is the Son of God, loved and delighted by in God the Father, then why does he go through this? Well, I think this is incredibly important. We'll end here. It's because he did it for you. And this is the last point, and we have to see this. Jesus is our substitute. To say that Jesus is our substitute is simply to say that Jesus took our place, right? And most of you have probably heard something like that before. How many of you have kind of heard, like, yeah, Jesus took our place. He's our substitute. Like, you've been around church at all. You have heard Jesus died for us or for you, right? And if you've not heard that, like, I just want to clearly say it. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and like me, right? Jesus died for you. And he did more than that. See, Jesus didn't just take our place in his death, but he also took our place in his life. Jesus died as our substitute, but Jesus also lived as our substitute. And the first thing that we really see this at, the first place is in his baptism. The baptism of Jesus, like it can be a little bit confusing, right? Mark tells us that John was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins and that people were coming to John and they were confessing their sins, they were repenting of their sins, and they were being baptized. But then we see Jesus comes to John and we have to take a time out there, right? You see, we know that Jesus is perfect. He didn't need to confess. He had nothing to repent of, right? He didn't have any sins to confess. So, so why is he coming to John to be baptized? The meaning of baptism as immersion is important here, right? Which is what we do. Like if you get baptized here at Hub City, which we're hoping to do some more baptisms when it gets warmer this summer. So be thinking about if you have not been baptized, but you're going to get put all the way under the water. We're not going to sprinkle you with some water. We're not, I'm not even, that's fine that people do that, but, but we believe that it's baptism by immersion. You're going all the way under the water, right? And so the meaning of that becomes important. Baptism really means to be plunged into something. It means to go down into the depths. It means to be immersed or submerged by something. And that's exactly what Jesus did to save us. The image of Jesus being baptized is not just about him being immersed underwater. It's about him being immersed into our humanity, into our darkness, into our sin, into our chaos. Jesus didn't just come to save us just by like swooping in one day heroically to defeat sin and death, and then he's done. 
right? That's not how he didn't. He didn't just go from heaven to a cross, right? Jesus entered into this world. He entered into creation. He became like one of us and allowed himself to be surrounded by sin and vulnerable to temptation. When Jesus came here, he came all the way here. Birkenstocks on the ground here, right? And he walked into the deepest, darkest back alleys of what it means to be human. Jesus was exposed to every threat that has ever come against our souls. When Jesus came here, he walked into the space of depression and the space of loneliness. He walked into the space of despair and brokenness, of addiction and sickness, of confusion and pain, and the space of the carnage left by abuse and suffering. Jesus immersed himself into the worst of this world, and he did it for you. He lived for you. And if you don't know that, then you don't know him. Jesus meets us in our needs and he meets us there as the Savior. Jesus entered into all the junk of our humanity and he conquered the power of Satan, sin, and death, not by divine violence, but by faith and obedience to God the Father as the Son of God. Loved and delighted in by God the Father as our substitute, Jesus did it in our place. Before Jesus overcame evil by his death, he overcame evil by his life. He perfectly fulfilled what we could not. He lived perfectly as a human. He lived perfectly into the law. Before Jesus came to this earth, Jesus knew what he was facing. He knew what he would experience. And the whole course of his life matters. That's why Calvin said it this way, the very moment that Jesus put on our flesh, he began to pay the price of our salvation, right? We often just think about it as the cross, but the moment that Jesus took on flesh, he started to pay the price. He started to redeem us out of sin and death and the slavery that it brings. Atonement did not merely start on the cross, that's where it ended. The whole life of Jesus was his battle in our place for our salvation. The cross was the ultimate battle, the ultimate humbling. Jesus humbled himself to become a human, and that was low enough, but then he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross was where evil brought its best. The cross is where the great enemies of God and his creation, man, they put all of their efforts against God. And it was there on the cross when Jesus destroyed evil as it was doing its worst to destroy him. The cross is about a hard-fought victory after a whole life of victory that was for you. This is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. This is what he's done for you. And we're going to take the next 24 weeks to see how Jesus lived the perfect life, died the perfect death in our place. So let's spend some time this morning responding to that truth. We're going to do that in a few different ways. We're going to invite you guys to sing. We're not inviting you to recite some words that are on a screen. This isn't a concert. Austin's not going to come up and perform for you. This is the work of the people, right? This is liturgical. This is what we do. We show up and we do the work of worshiping our good and great King and Savior. So we're going to sing. 
Man, and listen, I get it. I'm there with you. Some of us don't do that very well, right? (laughs) We don't. The person next to you might go like, wow, that's not how God hears it. God hears our hearts tuned to his. So let's sing, and we'll stop, and we'll take some time, and I would just encourage you, even before you sing, to pray, to communicate with God, to ask him to align your heart with his. That's what prayer is. It's us saying, God, like I can get all spun out into all sorts of different things, and I need my heart and my mind and my very soul to be aligned with your will and your goodness and your heart. Because the simple truth is this, you're in Christ today. The simple truth about you, if you've responded in faith and trusted Jesus, you're in Christ. That means that you are loved and delighted in just as the Son is. And so you can communicate with the Father through prayer and ask him to align your heart with his. We're going to stop and we're going to give. And we don't give because, listen, it's not about God needing your money. He doesn't. Because you know what? It's not, his mo- it's not your money. It's his. It's his resource that he gives to you for worship of him. And so, so we put giving as a response because it is a worshipful response. We give in worship to the great God who asks us to worship him. So we'd ask that you would give today. You can do that by, there's a box over there right where Matt's at. You can slide whatever, some money in there. Um, you can give online today. Um, that's least important to, to, to where your heart is when you do that. Do that not because you believe that you're paying me or you're paying Matt or you're paying the church or you're paying God. You can't. Do it out of worship for our good king. And then finally, we get to go to the table today and we get to receive. We're not going to wrestle away from, we're not taking it, but we are receiving God's good and gracious gift of his son, Jesus, who offered himself up freely as our substitute in our place. So that's how we're going to respond today. Let me pray and we'll respond. Father.